Hello and welcome to Agape Latte. Agape Latte is a storytelling series for students that features personal stories delivered by a faculty member, staff member, or administrator at the University of Dayton to share lessons about their intersection of faith and everyday life. Presenters use story sharing to help students explore how their passions, strengths, and gifts can be used to make the world a better place. Listen with an open mind and heart to hearing God working in your life and in the lives of others. For this episode, we welcome Dr. Mark Maste. Mark came to the university in 2006 and served as department chair for the chemistry department from 2006 to 2014. He currently is full-time faculty and co-director of the graduate studies in chemistry. Mark has six kids, four of which graduated from UD. The plan for tonight, the title of this talk is uh, An Unexpected Resonance, um, a Protestant at a Catholic Marianist institution. And I'll elaborate on that. And so uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you just a little bit about myself first and how I came to UD. Then I'll talk a little bit about my sort of spiritual journey and background and uh, some of the opportunities that I feel like UD has presented me with and some kind of visions or hopes that I have uh, for the future of UD. So first of all, um, I should say I'm from North San Diego County. If any of you have ever, ever been there, I grew up in the towns of Oceanside and Carlsbad. And in both of those towns, my houses were, my houses were about a mile from the beach. So it was a great place to grow up because until I had to work, I pretty much just lived at the beach during the summertime. It was great. And we just, you know, surfed and hung around. It was great. Uh, I am now uh, an associate professor in the chemistry department at UD. I've been here since 2006. I came to UD uh, as an outside chair. And I did that for eight years. So from 2006 to 2014. And then since 2014, I've just been kind of a regular faculty member. And uh, I'm a physical chemist, which means that I'm kind of a cross between physics and chemistry. And uh, my specializations really are photochemistry, the chemistry of light. And in particular, I study a lot about the chemistry of the way light affects the skin and the eye and other biological tissues um, and how to prevent, say, damage uh, caused by light. And then on the more exotic kind of theoretical side, I, I work on um, theories about how to develop very small thermometers that might say, for example, fit inside of a cell and so measure like temperatures of say a mitochondrion or something like that. Um, this is actually my uh, fourth faculty position. So my first faculty position was uh, at Drake University in Des Moines uh, and I was there for a number of years and then I took a position at New Mexico back in the 90s took a position at New Mexico Highlands University in Las Vegas, New Mexico, which is a beautiful place uh, for a year. And then I went to Murray State University in Murray, Kentucky in 1996. And I was there for 10 years. And that's where I came to UD from. Uh, I went to UC San Diego as an undergraduate and got a BA in chemical physics there. And then I took a, a, a stint with uh, Crew or Campus Crusade for Christ uh, at that time is what it was called for a number of years. And then I went back to grad school, began at UC Riverside in East Los Angeles, 
got my master's degree there and then followed my research advisor back to Carnegie Mellon University back in Pittsburgh where I got my PhD. So that's kind of the, the sort of impersonal side, the academic side. And, and I like to know a little bit at least about the, the non-academic side of, of uh, people I hear speak. So I'll just tell you real quickly some brief things. So Claire mentioned that I have six kids. These are the, these are the six kids. And uh, uh, briefly on the left here is Tom. Uh, he was a finance major at the University of Kentucky. And he now lives uh, with his wife, Angie, and their two sons down in Austin, Texas, where he works as a financial analyst. This is Tara. Tom's the oldest, Tara's the youngest, she's 23. She just graduated from UD last year as a graphic design major, and she's back home right now uh, looking for jobs and hopefully will, uh, you know, in this COVID environment like Nathan was talking about, it's difficult, hopefully land something fairly soon. Um, this is Tyler. Uh, Tyler uh, <clears throat> um, graduated, I think, and I can't even keep them all straight. I have it written down here yet. In 2017, Tyler was a math and computer science double major at UD, and he's now a graduate student down at the University of Texas in Austin, so he in mathematical physics, and he lives fairly close to Tom. This is Ted. Ted graduated in 2012 from UD, and he was a political science major went on to grad school, and he's now a new professor of political science back at DeSales University, close to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. So he's just starting out his academic journey, and he lives there with his wife, uh, Becca, and their two kids, very young kids. This is, uh, next in line is Tim. He's the second oldest. He's now 33, and he went to University of Kentucky. He was a business and economics major, and uh, he played football there and then had the good fortune of playing in the NFL for a number of years with the Green Bay Packers. And now he lives in, in Lexington, Kentucky, where he coaches soccer at one of the high schools there. And he lives there with his wife, Amanda, and their three kids. And last but not least is Tad. Tad graduated from uh, UD in 2016. And um, uh, got a double major in English and Women's and Gender Studies. So that, that photo there was taken back in uh, December 2017. This is my favorite photo though. This is a much, much younger photo of them. This was back in about 2000, uh, 2002 or so. So there's Tara, Tyler, Tad, Ted, Tim, and Tom. And I just like it because it's a straight height, except Tim is trying to skew the the slope of the line here a little bit by standing on his tippy toes, but he really wasn't that tall. And uh, this is almost the entire clan now. This is back in December of 2017. There's Tim, his wife, Amanda, their three kids, Tad. This is me. This is my wife, Jeannie, um, who went to the University of Colorado. Tyler, Tara, Ted, and his wife, Becca. They didn't have any kids at the time. And here's Tom and Angie and his two sons. And if you want to know why the names all begin with T, I'll just say you need to talk to my wife, who was the originator of that idea. That's all I'm going to say about that. Okay, so um, except to say that I thought it was kind of dumb, and it made things complex. So I gave everybody nicknames that did not begin with T. Uh, so let me tell you a little bit about my spiritual background, because that really is, is the, the point of this talk in a way. Uh, when I was growing up, my dad didn't go to church. Um, 
my mom did, and she took my sister and me to church uh, in Carlsbad and Oceanside there in North San Diego County, usually to Presbyterian churches or non-denominational churches, but my dad didn't go. And, uh, you know, I really didn't go to church kicking and screaming. I wasn't fighting it, but we were not a particularly devout family. Uh, we just kind of went on Sundays, and, and I kind of was a little bit interested, but not that much. I just went kind of out of duty. And in fact, I really was kind of a born skeptic. And I didn't really believe in Christianity truly until I was 17. That said, I, I did kind of hedge my bets a bit because I remember at one point when I was about 12 or 13, I went to kind of a youth group at this church and they encouraged you to get baptized. And I thought, you know, just in, just in case this thing really is real, maybe I should just get baptized. So I, I did, but it, it had no impact on me. Um, um, and uh, I should say that really, even from that age, because I, I, I wasn't that serious about it, denominations didn't matter to me much at all either. There was a Catholic church right down the street from the non-denominational church that my mom took us to. All I knew was that I had friends who went to both churches, knew that you know people had reasons for going there, didn't really know what they were. Uh, and so had no, no uh, bone to pick with anybody. I just knew that that existed. I will say that there was a girl that I was kind of fond of that went to the Catholic church. So that was a point in favor of Catholicism as far as I was concerned. Uh, but beyond that, I had no real thought about it. Um, I, I will say that when I was 17, that was my senior year in, in college, um, my, my conversion to Christ did change me in some significant ways. And I won't bore you with the details of that now, um, but, uh, but that was my senior year. And the following year, I began as a freshman at the University of California at San Diego. And I can, I can tell you that honestly, um, I had a professor who was a philosopher who really kind of went hard after, after people who had faith and, and kind of attacked them. And it sort of shook me up a little bit and it kind of knocked me off my equilibrium. And it wasn't until toward the end of my end of my freshman year that I hooked up with some students who were uh, associated with it was called Campus Crusade for Christ back then, Crew now, InterVarsity, just kind of campus um, interdenominational Protestant ministries, kind of like the Newman Club in a way from a Catholic side, I guess if you want to look at it that way. And I got involved with them and. Uh, was involved with them for a long time, and they kind of formed me in a lot of ways. By the time I graduated, I'd gotten accepted to a lot of graduate schools in chemistry, and I was trying to decide whether to go to graduate school or to go into campus ministry, and I decided to go to, to, to campus ministry, which led to a firestorm at home. This was not well accepted by my parents. Uh, they were, they were uh, angry about this, and uh, it was a tough go. Uh, we had to raise our support and things, but I did. And I, I worked for four years for the organization. And my first year was at Central Washington State College in Ellensburg, Washington. My second year was the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. And then I spent two years at Berkeley. And it was at Berkeley that uh, I met my wife, Jeannie. And I, I should say, actually, that, you know, my Jeannie, I owe a great debt of gratitude to because Jeannie was like a really a natural leader, really smart. Uh, 
And she was kind of destined for like national leadership within that organization. And I was like a person who like barely qualified to get into that organization, I felt like. I mean, I was a hacker. Um, but I, I didn't really have ambitions to grow much in that organization. And so she said, well, why don't you go back to grad school in chemistry? And so we decided to do that. And in a sense, she, she gave up some of her own aspirations. I'm, I'm grateful to her for that. Ultimately, I think that was best for both of us because staying in that would not have been good for me. But at any rate, she was giving something up there. So that's kind of ancient history. Um, uh, I, I should say that I had some very good experiences with crew. I also got to go to India and North Africa. So it kind of broadened my horizons in a lot of ways. But that's all ancient history. That ended back in about 1982 when I went back to grad school. And so I want to come closer to the current time and, and talk about my sort of pre-UD spiritual preparation for UD, right? I'd served in ministry for a number of years, been involved with churches and things. but um, sometime during the time I was at Murray State, probably late 1990s, somehow I got connected to a website for this thing called Reformation and Revival Ministries. And it was run by a guy named John Armstrong who lived in Chicago. And originally when I hooked up with this, it was kind of a Calvinistic reformed kind of website. And what he was trying to do was kind of rejuvenate Reformed and Calvinist churches. And it had a little bit of a slight um, negative toward Catholicism kind of slant. And I remember that back around maybe 2002, something like that, I was traveling back north from the south. I had to, I had to go down to Georgia with my daughter. And she was little. I was sitting in a McDonald's. And I remember reading a newsletter that came from him. And all of a sudden, he had gone through this transition. And rather than build walls of separation. He wanted to build bridges between Catholics and Protestants. And that kind of turned me on because by nature, I'm a peacemaker. And so being ecumenical sort of comes natural to me, to my personality. And around that same time, there was another ministry, and some of you may have heard this. It wasn't a ministry. It was a project. It was called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. And it was led by luminaries uh, on both the Protestant and Catholic sides. And, and uh, um, Chuck Colson, who was an assistant to, uh, to um, President Nixon and who founded Prison Ministries International, was on the Protestant side, one of the leaders. Avery Dulles, who was an archbishop in the Catholic Church, was one of the others. The objective of this organization was to say, look, we have a lot of theological commonality, though not perfect theological commonality, but on social issues, we're very similar. And why not work together? And this, this kind of worked for a while, eventually it kind of broke down, but it was, a, it was a, a, good, a good initiative. And incidentally, I want to say this, just, just to be clear, um, you know, evangelical is kind of a dirty word in a lot of, in a lot of ways uh, in these days, I think, and maybe deservedly so because it's very politically co-opted now. But when I use the term, because that's my background, I'm not talking about the political side of it at all. I'm talking about the theological side, which I think actually has a really rich heritage and is actually cool. And so the, the, the co-opting of evangelicals by the right, that's a recent thing. It's not always been that way. And it's kind of unfortunate in my own personal view. So when I, when I came to UD, 
Um, I should say that I came to UD entirely against my will um, because what had happened was this. Uh, I did not get tenure at my first university. I got tenure at Murray State. And I was kind of sitting very fat and happy at Murray State, just doing my thing, teaching, doing research. I'd been asked to become a chair. I said, no, I just wanted to do those things. Uh, and so I was sitting very fat and happy. My wife had been a director for the Red Cross and for the YMCA at various times there. And I was kind of isolated at the university. Murray, Kentucky is a town of about 15,000 people. And the population doubles when the university's in session to about 30,000. But it's kind of a typical southern small town, right? And I was protected from the, the town environment just by virtue of working at the university. Jeannie was not. And she really wanted to move to a bigger city. She found a better job up, at, up in Loveland, in the right north Cincinnati area. And so she said she really wanted to go there. And I did not want to go. But I decided, well, she's done a lot for me. I'll, I'll give this up, right? And, and we'll go up there. So what happened was um, I, I, um, uh, we decided that if I could get a job in, in, um, in Southwest Ohio within a year, that we would move there. But that in the meantime, she would take the job and take my daughter up with her. So she took Tara and Ted and Tad and Tyler, the boys that were still at home, stayed with me. Tom and, Tom and Tim were at Kentucky by then, University of Kentucky. I got to say, honestly, that was a great year for me because, I mean, the boys and I just lived like a fraternity house. We went out to pizza almost every night, and the only bad times was when Jeannie and Tara came home because we had to clean up the house then, but we, uh, we managed to pull that off satisfactorily somehow. So uh, I, I, I actually got the job then at UD, and that's what brought us here. But when we came, uh, I was kind of reticent. I, was, I, I really didn't know what this was going to be like, because I come from a Protestant background. And I know the Catholics are somewhat different. I'm sophisticated somewhat about it by that time. And the Society of Mary sounded mysterious to me because Mary is, you know, is regarded kind of differently sometimes between Protestants and Catholics. And I thought, this could get really weird. But when I came, you know, faculty have to go through an orientation. And the year that I came, I had to go through my orientation to UD at the Besch Lounge, if you know where this is, in the, in the basketball arena. And when I went, it was Father Paul Marshall, who was the rector at the time, for the university, and he was the one who explained what the Marianists were all about, and he talked about Mary. And the way he presented Mary was that, you know, she was a, a really smart, deeply faithful, deeply devout young woman who was almost kind of an activist and very smart by nature. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, that's exactly the way I've always thought of Mary. And even in my Protestant tradition, that's the way she's always been presented to me. So I thought, well, maybe this won't be so weird after all. And so I felt a little bit more relaxed right away. One of the other things that, that struck me about this was that, um, you know, UD, I could tell, was a very white institution. Uh, and, but Father Paul was black. And that kind of set me at ease a little bit. I thought, wow, this is going to be kind of a cool place in a lot of ways. 
So shortly on the heels of that, I, I immediately started kind of exploring the campus with the time that I had. I mean, you're busy as a chair, but I went to a, a, a meeting led by Jason Pierce. And I know a lot of you know who Jason Pierce is. Many of you maybe know him. He's now the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences. At the time, Jason was a political science professor and he had led an initiative on campus exploring problems with alcohol culture on campus. And I went to hear him talk about this and I could tell that he was kind of a mover and shaker on campus. He was influential, um, but he also happened to be the faculty advisor for Crew, the organization that I used to work with as uh, you know, uh, for a number of years. And I was considering becoming the faculty advisor. So he and I kind of became friends and we go to lunch pretty regularly, eat Indian food and became friends and talked. Uh, um, so that was kind of my initial exploration of things that had to do with anything spiritual beyond you know, my orientation. Um, I was selected, uh, in my second year to be part of a thing called Leadership UD. And that was the clicker for me because I met Claire Sullivan at that point in time. And I think some of you know who Claire Sullivan is. Claire is the Director of Student Ministry, Campus Ministry for Students on campus. And she and I became very good friends. And later on, she played a big role in some of the things that you know I've tried to participate on in. Uh, in that same year, uh, I, it was in the spring of 2008, I was part of a committee that somehow I got asked to be on, which was um, uh, for, um, it was called Education as a Calling. Education as a Calling was a committee that was designed to help the School of Education and Health Sciences fulfill its academic mission and its spiritual mission as a Catholic and Catholic Marianist institution. I mean, basically they were trying to prepare teachers for elementary school and preschool and middle school and high school to go out and be prepared to teach, but to carry kind of a Catholic and Marianist vision with them. And I remember that the guy who led that was um, one of the priests on campus, Father Jack McGrath, great guy, had this deep booming voice, a giant guy, loved the guy. And unfortunately he passed away a number of years ago. But in those conversations, of course, when you're preparing teachers, one of the things that was an issue that had to be dealt with is, what do you do if you're training science teachers about teaching evolution in the classroom? Right now, Catholics are much less uptight about this issue than really conservative uh, Protestants are, but I was kind of interested in that issue, and I found this book called Roman Catholicism and Modern Science, uh, a history. Father Jack knew I had found this book. He bought me a copy. It's a great book to read, and it talks about the, the whole issue of evolution uh, within Catholicism. Very interesting thing. So that was a positive experience for me. That same summer, I attended a thing called Collegium. And this is a thing for staff and faculty at Catholic universities to go to if they're not Catholic, or even if they are Catholic, to go and learn uh, what it means to be uh, teaching and working at a Catholic institution. The summer that I did it was at the, at the College of the Holy Cross in, in Massachusetts. That was really a good experience. And one of the things I remember like super clearly was we would meet almost every day for homilies. I remember being in a homily and they would have prayer after the homilies. One of the persons leading the homily 
thanked God for different people who had been spiritual leaders. And two of the leaders that they thanked God for were Martin Luther and John Calvin. And when they did that, I thought, wow, this is very cool. And it really made me feel comfortable and kind of embraced because those guys, of course, are part of my background. Um, uh, not long after that, I was asked to deliver a talk about the impact of, of faith on my work. And I did this out at the Bergamo Center, if any of you have been there, in January of 2009. The woman who asked me to do that, right, she knew I was a Protestant. She was not, but she asked me to do it. And uh, it was a great experience. And at the same time, she asked me if I would like to become a Marianist Educational Associate. And I said, sure. And we can talk about what that means later on. And I was excited about it because we had to go for about a 10-day orientation to this at Chaminade University in Honolulu. Well, I've never been in Honolulu, so I thought, hey, this would be a cool thing. I can go to Honolulu and I can learn all this stuff as well. I went. I did not get selected, though. And so my application just laid fallow. But then three years later, my, active, my application was still active. And she said, would you like to try again? And I said, sure, why not? Being kind of think, well, it's not going to work. But it did. And it was at Chaminade again that year. So I ended up going to Honolulu after all. And, and when I was there, we were asked at one point to really go out and think about how we would define ourselves in a, in a, in a short phrase. And I remember going out and sitting on this rock uh, on the Chaminade campus outside the conference center, kind of sitting on a rock like the thinker, you know, like that statue almost. And I came up with this phrase. I said, I'm a Protestant evangelical with a Chaminade-like view of spirituality. And that actually is a really good description of me, right? I had been learning about Chaminade and Marie Therese and um, Sister Adele, the three founders there, and kind of gaining a little bit of appreciation for them. And I started to understand the mind of Chaminade a little bit. And I thought, boy, there's a lot of things in common between him and my background. The next year, I got to go on the Shamanad, which was an awesome experience. And this is a tour where you go and you go to France and Spain and you go to places that were influential in his life. Right. So you start in Paris, you go to various places throughout France and you end up in Bordeaux in sort of southern France. And I was really humbled when I was in Bordeaux because I was walking along streets in Bordeaux that he would have walked along, pretending to be a seller of pots and pans, when really what he was doing was going in and ministering to people during the French Revolution. He was risking his life to do this. And in fact, about a half mile from where that street that I walked on where he was, was there was a park. It's just a beautiful little park now. But at the time, it was the guillotine center. And they beheaded about 500 people in that park, including some priests. So it gave me an appreciation for the risk that he ran. We also got to see the, the, the little house in the country where Marie Therese ran her kind of ministry and, and she did things in town also at great risk to herself. And we visited Adele's like absolutely opulent estate out in the French countryside, which she essentially gave up to go into her ministry with the Marianists. So I came 
home from that with like a great sense of identity with the Marianas. Then I thought, wow, they're a little bit similar to crew in a lot of ways, the way they thought. Okay, so um, more recently, there have been a few things that I've done that I think you might find interesting. So back in about, I don't know, 2012, 13, Joe Mashburn, if anybody of you know him, he was the chair of the math department and now he's a prof in the math department. Joe and I decided to form a Bible study on campus and it would be interdenominational. Anybody who, could, who wanted to do could come, we did. And we decided we better make this thing official. And you remember I mentioned Crystal Sullivan earlier. Uh, when, when Crystal and I had talked earlier, I recognized that it was important for any kind of ministries on campus to be officially recognized. And so we wanted to play a straight game. And so um, I, I um, said to Joe, well, let's get together with Crystal and tell her that we're doing this and make sure that this is all hunky-dory. So we did, and we got together at KU and had lunch with her and a Catholic priest named Father Tom Shore. And Crystal said, oh, heck yes, you guys can do this. And in fact, I, I would highly encourage you to do it. And campus ministry will even give you some money to help with this if you need help that way. And I said, well, I don't really think we need any money, but thanks for the support. So we felt like we were going, uh, you know, pretty, pretty straight game above board on this, not being secretive about anything. And it's a great study. And now it meets with about 15 faculty and staff. Anybody's welcome to come, students too, on Wednesday afternoons at four via Zoom. Uh, we study the Gospel of Luke, but periodically we change, change topics. And uh, it's been kind of a very rewarding experience and very uh, eclectic. Uh, Dr. Trick comes to this, uh, and uh, we have all kinds of denominations that attend. Um, I did a number of other things also. I served on the advisory council for the University Professor of Faith and Culture, Dr. Yoakum, if you know her from Religious Studies. I worked on the MEA development team, and I've done uh, a number of other things. I mean, you know, you do this long enough, there's all kinds of little things that you do. I won't bore you with all of that. One thing that's been recent, though, uh, that I've kind of been pursuing with Dr. Trick and Allison Lee, who kind of heads up the, the MEAs in a lot of ways, is I've recently been reading this book, and some of you have no doubt heard of it, maybe some of you have read it. It's called The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in an Age of Colorblindness, right? And this is by a woman named Michelle Alexander who's in the law school at Ohio State. And she points out in this book that um, um, the poor community, and particularly the poor black community, was really affected badly by the war on drugs, because you become a felon for a possession of an incredibly small amount of marijuana or something like that, and then you go to prison for this. And there's all kinds of injustices with the way that the trials work, but once you're a felon, that stays on your record, even after you've done your time, and it becomes incredibly difficult for you to get a job or to get housing. And so uh, Kim Trick and Allison Lee and I have kind of been trying to pursue conversations with the administration to say, why don't we think about giving a preferential hiring option to former felons who, um, uh, right, who don't pose a risk, nonviolent felons, right? Don't pose a risk to anybody because we can help them more than hiring just the average person off the street who might also be desperately in need of a job, but is more likely to get a job elsewhere because they're not a felon. 
And so um, I don't know how that conversation is going to go. It's moving forward with the Marianist Educational Associates right now. Okay, just a couple more minutes and then I will shut up because I don't want to take too much time. Um, I, I titled this talk, you know, uh, An Unexpected Resonance. And I, I want to clarify what I mean by that. By resonance, I mean kind of a combination of acceptance and uh, commonality. So first of all, think about this. I came to the university not really knowing that much about Catholicism, not being a Catholic. And yet I got invited to do all kinds of things at high levels of ministry within the university in spite of the fact that I'm not a Catholic. Man, that was really wildly accepting to me. And I really appreciated it. And because of that acceptance and my ability to, to, to the ability it gave me to explore ideas and things, I began to realize some, some great commonalities between Catholicism and Protestantism, which because of my ecumenical bent, suspected were always there anyway. Namely, you know, commonalities between the Catholic intellectual tradition, which I had no appreciation for before I came, and really is an awesome intellectual tradition, and no idea of the philosophical and theological depth of the Catholic Church until I came here. And I, I look for commonalities between that and the Protestant Church, Orthodox Churches, really the whole Christian tradition. So it's a combination of acceptance and resonance and, and, and uh, commonality that led to this resonance. I just feel like I resonate with this place. Obviously, four of my kids came here also. Just a couple of things um, that I'll mention. Look, look at the things. Here are some dreams of mine that I think could be things that could be pursued down the road. First of all, um, I think it's interesting to really explore theological intersections between Catholicism and Protestantism, even at the places where we think we differ most, maybe back at the time of the Reformation. I, I wonder if you know that John Calvin, one of the Protestant reformers, had a deep regard for Bernard of Clairvaux, who was the founder of the Cistercians, and in particular, with regard to the doctrine of justification by faith, which one of, was one of the defining points and dividing points for the reformers. But he got his ideas from a Catholic writer. I think it's, it's useful to explore each other's traditions, right? I mean, I, I, I came here with some knowledge of like Luther and Calvin and Wesley and, and great Protestant leaders, no idea about Aquinas and Anselm Contarini, Reginald, Pohl, others. I think it's great to explore those great leaders together um, from both sides. Uh, and I think it's interesting to look at movements as well, right? I mean, the Franciscans, it seems to me, and the Moravians and the Methodists on the, the Franciscans on the Protestant, a Catholic side, Moravians and the Methodists on the Protestant side share a lot of ideas and practices in common. And it's kind of fun to explore those and see the similarities. It's kind of interesting, I think, that, you know, the charisms of various orders within the Catholic Church kind of are like the, the different emphases that are present within various parachurch organizations on the Protestant side. There's some similarities there that I think are interesting to explore. I think it's really going to be interesting to explore Pope Francis's new 
encyclical, uh, right, uh, Fratelli Tutti. I haven't looked at it yet, but I think that's going to be a really interesting thing to explore maybe together. Uh, and one or two more things and I'm done. You know, I mentioned evangelicals and Catholics together and working um, uh, for, uh, you know, common social ends. That was a great thing. There really are a lot of commonalities between Catholics and Protestants in a lot of ways, right? I mean, surrounding Black Lives Matter, certainly there would be, and there is, right? And I recently became aware of a book called White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. This book looks like it's gonna be an awesome book. I read a review of it recently. And um, I will just say that the, that the phrase white too long came from James Baldwin, if you're familiar with him, um, right? Where he said that white people have been white so long they can't see their own biases. This book uh, I, is gonna be kind of a moving book, but look what this gives us an opportunity to do, right? I mean, the legacy of Protestant American Christianity with regard to racism is horrendous, right? I mean, we had denominations that split over it, the Northern and Southern Presbyterian churches, right? Because one wanted slavery and one didn't. And you're probably aware of Georgetown. Some Catholic orders had slaves as well. There's just a lot of repenting to do. And so Catholics and Protestants, kind of equivalent in that regard, we can repent together and work together on those kinds of things. And, and lastly, I'll say this. I wouldn't have ever thought I would have said this, but it's true. I think we can actually preach the gospel together, right? Um, supposedly, we've differed over that historically, and we have. But there have been recent convergences with regard to that. And even where we may feel differences, we can do it. And we'll learn from each other, and the world will benefit from it, right? There's been a long ecumenical tradition for 150 years to try to bring Catholics and Protestants together. That came to fruition at Vatican II. Um, and uh, great opportunities for us to do that now. And I think with that, I will stop. Those are some of my dreams. And uh, I just want to say thanks for listening to this. I hope it wasn't too boring. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you for listening to our Agape Latte podcast today. Agape Latte is sponsored by Campus Ministry and the Office for Mission and Rector. We hope you will join us again next semester when Agape Latte returns.